Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. To the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. It is a pleasure to have you with us as we explore the world of sports coaching and rugby. I'm delighted to have my two guests join me this week. So, ladies, if you'd like to introduce yourselves, where you're from, and your current role. Hi, um, Joe Yap. Um, I'm from Shropshire and I'm currently the DOR at Worcester Warriors for the women. And I am Shazelle Mather, and I'm podcasting here from in London. And I am the director of rugby at Wast Ladies that play in the Premier 15s. Absolute pleasure to have you both on. Thank you very much for giving up your time. Um, quick reminder before we get stuck into the content if people want to check out the blurb for all the links to the content we discussed. So uh, we'll go straight into it, Joe. We'll come to you first. What content did you engage with this week? Hi, I went on to the, uh, the sports site show and um, listened to a podcast that was about uh, reflections of developing um, a winning coaching program. And it was with Lisa Alexander. Uh, she's the Australian netball coach um, called the Diamonds. Um, just kind of really interested to sort of um, hear her perspective, a different sport. Um, her own route was from teacher to coach, which seems to be quite um, a common route for a lot of coaches. And she kind of highlighted herself. She was one of the few netball coaches that hadn't actually played at the um, the sort of for Australia herself um, and then in 2011 she when she took over the the netball team she she kind of found although they were kind of off the back of winning there was quite a lot of work to do with them and she came in and very much wanted to look at the athlete uh, on the holistic view and at that point in 2011 it wasn't as kind of like now it's kind of very much the buzz thing, isn't it? The, the biopsycho social sort of um, looking at the whole athlete. But back then she kind of came across quite a few barriers, which she talked about and she was perceived very much as kind of, it was soft because she wasn't talking about the tech and tap, which I think is something we can probably all relate to in our early coaching as sometimes when we look at those softer skills, it can be perceived as soft. Um, so I found that really interesting and, and how she kind of went about, she wanted to create the, um, the best high performance program in the world. Um, and she wanted it to be better than the All Blacks. So she wasn't just talking about netball, she was talking about across the whole world. And um, she obviously clearly did a, a great job with 80 plus percent um, success rate in winning, which was, which was amazing. But she sort of set about very much around focusing on on the individuals and getting to know the individuals and getting to know their individuals' families and also focusing on the players' careers because they were at the time still balancing those. And, um, and she just made a, a massive difference to them. And, um, and kind of when it came down to it, she, she kind of focusing on um, all of those things and then sort of finding out actually what the athlete wanted from them as coaches, and um, which was ultimately people talking the truth and being honest and that's what they wanted although it's not always what they want to hear it's actually what they wanted um so I found it just really fascinating and interesting listening to um listening to somebody from a different sport who's had huge success um you know and and to why she had so much success first question so we've moved probably quite a long way in in or certainly 
players' understanding of how a coach operates, I would guess, has probably moved quite a long way. Do you still find that some players aren't aware of why you would be now looking and working with them as a whole person? And do we need to do a better job of explaining that? Or do you think it's something that they don't need to see? But actually, if they're just kind of aware of that, I'm not sure if I phrased that question very well, but. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's something that they need to not necessarily see, but they need to feel, they need to know and understand that you do care because I do think you get more out of players. And obviously our challenges um, coaching is, is we do have limited time with them, but it's trying to sort of make, you know, although we want to be successful on the field, it's such a huge part of being successful on the field. So, you know, um, sometimes you do have to sacrifice a bit of the rugby to ensure you're having those, those individual conversations with players. Would you be quite explicit about why you do that? Or, or is that just, would they just accept that as you, you and your coaching team being your coaching team and that's just how it's done? Yeah, I think they just realise that that's how, that's how we coach. And I don't think it's sort of something we say, oh, this is why we're doing it. It's just something you do. Like, um, it's just something we do. Um, so I don't think you sort of explain, we're, we're having this conversation because I want to get to know you better. Yes, of course, you know, you are getting to know them better, but I don't think necessarily have to always outline it like that to them because it has to be, and something she speaks about in here, it has to be authentic. If it comes across as false and that you're all sort of deliberately using this as some sort of coaching tool, it, it has to be authentic, which I think is important. It's interesting. I, I'm going through the same thing at the moment and it's, there was lots of feedback from the kind of the previous or the, yeah, the people that are involved previously just around they, they wanted to understand more, which is, which is why I find it fascinating because they, they almost kind of, you know, they wanted to peek behind the curtain and see what was happening and, and have that explained to them. So it, it, I think it's that balance of if that's the feedback you're hearing, but you're not necessarily, you don't want to make it too exposed. You don't want to kind of let them see everything, but actually how you then balance their understanding of the process you want to, work with them through as opposed to their need for information rather than someone having a conversation them sat there going why the hell are they talking to me about my family like we're, we're you know we're, we're here for rugby let's just get on with it it's, it's I find it an interesting balance yeah but I, I also think it's something that takes time it's not something that's going to come in one conversation I've obviously only been at Worcester a short time and actually from a playing perspective a very short time um, with it being cut short but it, it's something that takes it takes time and you have to build up that trust. You can't just expect after one conversation for players to open up and trust you. And because it, it's not something that's going to happen. And it's certainly not something that, you know, I've had different interactions with players at Worcester, but some more than others, but it, it takes time to build that trust. And um, by no means is it going to take a few months. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Giselle, how would that look for you, for you guys at Wasps? What, um, what would the kind of process be? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm in complete alignment here with, with Joe because I don't feel I can coach unless I know the athlete. Uh, you know, it's, it's just part of how we do things. So when you, when you see something that is, so, so just going to, to something that happened last night, um, an athlete got something completely, completely wrong, but hated the fact that she'd got it wrong. And then it wasn't actually her fault that it had gone wrong. It was somebody else. And it was quite funny at the time, but then it wasn't funny for this athlete um, who, who had a bit of a, it was the, what well, we called it the first drop of the season. 
but it was it was done in um but because i know her i was aware of of where it was all coming from and what was happening um and i also knew that she hadn't had a great day either so that all contributes to how you then perceive the interaction that comes back to you from the player so you you might challenge then they challenge and how you respond to that will depend on how well you know the athlete so yeah i think i think you you get to know the real nuances of how they cope with success and failure how they cope with negative feedback or positive feedback some some can't stand it if you tell them first of all how well they're doing because they look at you and say, yeah yeah they want to know what it is and that they need to correct whereas others if you go for that correct you know correction first you you get a brick wall as well so i just think you get so much deeper more quickly when you've spent the time getting to know the people that you work with question for both of you do you think you developed that skill of recognizing and understanding and working with people or do you think there's a large part of that that's quite natural to you so the reason i was i, I was listening to the um jake humphrey high performance podcast and he interviewed Casey neville and she she was just talking about actually emotional intelligence she felt that she was a pretty emotionally intelligent person but how much of that was developed in the environment she then got in with sports psych kind of influencing her and having that coaching support so i'm really interested when you move into a kind of a performance level but you don't necessarily have international support kind of levels around it is that something you guys think that you've just developed yourself and you've gone out and been proactive in developing or is there an innate part of that that just comes quite naturally to you um from from my point of view i think it's something that is natural to me to a degree. Um, I don't know if Joe will remember, but back in 2006, when we went to World Cup, that kind of was my role in the coaching. One of the, the major roles that I had was the, we did the, a picture of performance and we had this ship, didn't we Joe? That was our, our you know, and how everything worked. And I was um, up in, on, around the crow's nest, around the radar stuff about feeling how the whole thing was moving and who was stressed and who wasn't stressed and who, just because it was a natural thing that I could, I could do and, and then diffuse situations. There were a couple of major things that cropped up, which then came through me to, to the head coach rather than it be become explosive. So I think it's something, but I, I, I think through time though, it becomes deepened. So for example, this COVID thing has been a really interesting one for me in the sense of, I think when adversity hits, that's when you know if it really is your philosophy. So looking after people, it's all very well. And, and it's what Joe said about being authentic, looking after people um, and, and getting to know people is easy when things are fine and chatting away and it's all great. It's when, things are difficult or or players have really difficult things it's do you bother to ring them up do you do you connect with them do you um spend time picking up the phone to athletes that you know are living on their own in the lockdown do you you know it's all these things so as soon as there's adversity or when your team's not won for three or four weeks is that still the philosophy and i think that through experience i'm very aware that that is you've got to you've got to practice it when it's tough and then it it is, if you know what I mean. And I think that that is something that the more 
time I've spent in coaching, the more that becomes my default position. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I don't know whether it's innate or not, but I think it's something that probably started to develop at a young age um, and sort of being in teams myself and kind of leading teams from quite a young age, you sort of start to step back and become more aware of how other people are feeling. Um, and then I think from being a teacher as well, um, and obviously like working with students and getting to know students and trying to get the best out of them. And obviously the better you get to know them, the more you get out of them. Um, so I think all of that kind of then linked into me developing that further into coaching. And, and I think working with a younger age group, so um, working with the twenties and working with, with X to uni, they're such a young, group and that they sort of they need that that support that off-field support a lot um like university it's the first time they're away isn't it and, and literally rugby does become their family and they're so reliant on on yourselves and teammates to support them so you kind of quite quickly realize that this is more than just rugby you're here to support and um so you you become much more aware of what's going on with these with these people and realize you can kind of you you know they'll do a lot more for you the more you sort of can support and do for them um, and get to know them. So, yeah, so I don't know if it's innate or it's just something that's developed over time. I, I'm wondering just maybe why, why there are some coaches and we could probably list them, we won't, but that don't have that ability or that understanding of emotional intelligence or that ability to engage. And, and I, is, is that just a personality thing? How, like how do you guys, if you've got them or you've worked with them, how have you managed them to try and, expand their understanding of that because it's it's always a challenge i don't think there's ever a right answer but it would be interesting just to see what your experience of those people has been uh i think i think for me it's about so working with them about raising their awareness of moments um so something happens and it's the reflective bit and i think emotionally intelligent people can reflect very quickly about when you got it right and when you got it wrong um, and being aware of the actual effect that it had on the individual um, so you know you do something and you can see you don't necessarily need to respond immediately to to correct but it's a check-in afterwards to sort it out um, so that they don't go home from training with that with that anger or that upset or whatever it may be um, and I think I think it is, a, it's the nature nurture question, isn't it? I think there is, it is innate in some people, but it still needs to be developed in those people. Um, and then those who, who don't. And I, th I think it's about raising their awareness to moments of things where it's like, how did you think that went? What did you think their reaction was? Just the questioning around that to raise that person's awareness. And then if they really genuinely want to get that bit right, they engage if they don't want to get that bit right then that's not the way they're going to coach yeah i think picking up on giselle's point around questioning and questioning is key isn't it is when you ask question about how it went and straight away you, they talk about the the practice or whether that was successful or not successful and then it's trying to dig a bit deeper in terms of well how actually how how would the players feel how were they responding what was their body language not actually the the tech tack all of the time um so it's kind of i think how you phrase and word those questions and dig a bit deeper nice who um who does that for you two in your environment o outside of the playing group giving you feedback 
who would challenge you as a director of rugby around being better at those types of things or your own work-ons or something like that? Is that key support that you've had that maybe now because you're kind of at the top of that tree you have less of or, you know, are there mentors involved? What's kind of been your experiences and processes there? Um, for me, like there's been lots of people that have supported and mentored me along the way, which has kind of helped my helped my awareness a lot. Um, I was had a, a guy called Brian Saunders who supported me on my level four and th through some of the um, other sports kind of courses that I did with Sport England, and he was he was amazing. Just sort of really opened my eyes to a, a different perspective. Um, and could see things that I hadn't and just sort of kind of gave me much more awareness around probably me taking too much control of stuff with the players and coaching and actually, you know, kind of going down the route of trying to create more leaders and we're not on the field with them and we can't be, can, you know, kind of taking that control. So he, um, he was great. And, um, uh, Neville Jeffrey, who, um, Phil, you must know, like and he's, he supported me early on with my mentoring and then, just working under all different coaches and learning lots from them. Uh, Keith Fleming at Worcester was um, at Worcester Exeter uh, at the uni, like working under him. Um, there's been lots of people that have sort of come in and influenced my my coaching, and and to the point where obviously like hubs at home as well, like I'll kind of run run stuff past him. And and now I'm at the point where at Worcester, and like I say, I'm still so relatively new there in terms of us as a as a coach and staff and obviously after a few months we all went into lockdown and as much as we constantly keep trying to engage with each other on zoom it's never quite the same is it but I, I constantly ask them sort of for feedback and and for us to give feedback and it's one thing that we're looking to do more of and to challenge each other on on what we're doing because you've got to be able to have those challenging conversations but that takes time and trust the same as it does with players so you know, I, I want to be open to people feeding back because, I've, you know, I've, there's some great people at Worcester with loads of experience around me now. So we need to use that to, to sort of challenge and check each other all of the time. That's cool. Do, do you still remember Neville's block of cheese? Because that's the biggest, that's the one thing everyone knows about Neville is... Oh, you know, there's so many things I remember about Neville. Like, I remember getting the eye patches out and, like, various other things. You know, he had a, he had a bag of tricks, didn't he, that he brought along to... Um, to to his sessions no he, he he was just brilliant like they talk about people worrying now about how they sort of the small group stuff but we'll speak to Neville because he's got 101 things you could be doing with small groups um he was yeah he's amazing please share the cheese story because I'm that's gonna so stay in my head because I don't know <laughs> so very much it is a visual thing so this won't come across overly well but um it was always the analogy you use when you're doing a, a level one or a level two or whatever some coach education and the coach never moves they're just kind of glued to that one spot so he does a little exercise where he kind of just gets people to describe a shape and one of them's a square one of them's a rectangle one of them's a triangle um and then he'll they'll go okay so you're none of you are looking at the same thing and everyone's like, no, of course we're not. Like one's got four sides, one's got three sides. And he's like, you're definitely sure that you're not looking at the same thing. And I was like, no, 100% we are not looking at the same thing. And then on the screen, he'll unveil, uh, unveil this block of cheese. And so if it's a slice, you think looking from the end, it's a square and then the side is a rectangle and the top is a triangle. And it's just all about perspective. And it's, it's just one of those things that once you've heard it and the way he delivers it, yeah, it's brilliant. So that is, that is just an absolute piece of gold dust from Neville. That will be, um, that will be there. So.
he could write a book, couldn't he? Oh, he could do. Yeah, he really should do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Giselle, what about you? How, how does your kind of... Um, I, I, I think there is... So I've been what director of Rabbit Wasp now for my fourth year. Um, and yeah, you, the people I work with are fabulous because we, we can bounce those ideas off of each other. Um, I'm actually quite direct. <laughs> sort of, you know, if there is an issue, it is, as Joe said, takes time. I, I kind of sometimes move a little faster perhaps on, on that and maybe sometimes tread not as softly as perhaps I should at the beginning maybe but it it allows us to have the freedom to to challenge to um discuss you know things that have happened and, and how we handled them and could we have handled them better um and I I feel there's a real trust in my coaching team at the moment right across the right across the, the team and you know we've been together now a little while and it, it it's really strong and really positive and then like Joe, I've had various people that I've worked with who, who've been fabulous with me. Um, Jeff Richards is one who was the head coach at the time that I was coaching England. And he's still absolutely fantastic. His perspective, he's so calm and so knowledgeable. Um, so be it a problem literally with, with the technical tactical or it's a problem around coaching in general or, or what to do about stuff, he, he's brilliant. Um, guy by the name of John Neal, who um, was again involved in that in that coaching team. He's a, a sports performance um, expert, and he's he's been amazing with me, and and just asks fabulous questions. So you know, I go to him, and he's just just all these questions come back at me as well. I think you need to go and think about that, and sends me on my way, which is which is great. Um, and then uh, Neil Hatley was I worked with him um, in the academy for a time, and and I had a really good. Uh, working relationship with him and and most recently Deck Danaher um, he started coaching in my um, when, when I was work, working with London Irish um, in the academy and he started his coaching career as he was coming off the field with me and uh, fabulous journey and we regularly check in you know six to eight weeks we usually check in with each other to see how how the world is going on the coaching front and uh, and, and that's fantastic as well so uh, yeah, I have a lot of support. Um, in, you know, Nolly Waterman recently, since she stopped um, uh, uh, coaching, she's probably one of the females that I, I check in quite a lot with as well because she has a an interesting perspective on on things as well, which uh, makes me stop, check, and and rethink. That's awesome. I I think you both just really yeah, so clear how valuable that support is, and I think for if coaches. Yeah, I, I definitely have a concern in the game at the moment that, that I think lockdown was really good for that just in terms of how open people were for conversations and those little kind of learning groups that come off the back of it. But I, I still, yeah, I wonder how much we, we pushed or do we push that enough or is, is it accessible enough? Because I, I do wonder about new coaches just being slightly scared to ask almost, you know, going yeah. in that hierarchy for one of a better term and kind of saying, could you could you work with me or could you mentor me? I, I I don't know what the answer is about making that an easier process to set up. But yeah, I think I, I was surprised with, with the lockdown stuff. Obviously, you know there was at one point I was like wow, and and a lot of my coaching coaching team was doing all these things. And in the end, I said right, what what I want you to do now is with everything that you've done, write out what will affect you and the way you're going to coach on a playing card that size. 
because when you listen to the gurus in coaching and you, you know, are absorbed in all of that, you can suddenly go, right, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this. And none of it's authentic because it doesn't fit with you. And I, I was quite stunned by how much stuff was all about the, as Joe said at the beginning, about the, the culture and about how you look after athletes rather than us talking about the game and about the technical and the tactical to find podcasts actually on that during the lockdown period it was mainly about the 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 process which is was fantastic but I think you've got to make sure that what you're hearing fits with you as a person and there are certain things where I look and I go oh wow that's brilliant and others I think well I I respect that but I, I couldn't do it because it just doesn't fit with who what or how I, I work and I think that's a critical thing for coaches coming through that when we all get back on the grass like properly the athletes just gonna go what is going on here <laughs> because it's just gonna be all this stuff and and we've got to make sure that it fits us as people and and our environment and our and our athletes I think going back to your sort of your point as well Phil around the, the mentoring piece I, I think it is so important for coaches and I still check in now with um, with Brian, um, and it's been a few years since since I kind of finished my my level four with him officially. But I can still check in with him, and I if I if I've hit a bit of a wall and I'm not sure which direction to go in, and I, I need some advice, I, I will I can still pick up the phone and chat that. And I'm speaking to somebody that he will listen, and he's out out of it a little bit, which I think is important to have somebody as well that you can bounce ideas off, and there's no judgment, and he's kind of neutral to it and I found that massively valuable and I think any coaches should look for somebody that they can have and see as a mentor where it is sort of outside probably of their current program so they can use that to use that support with with no judgment and to be able to share ideas and and kind of talk things through because I think it's it's hugely valuable. I have to say, in, in support of that with Joe, I've, I've coached with Brian Saunders in the London Irish um, uh, Elite Development Groups way back. And oh my God, he's amazing, isn't he? Absolutely amazing guy. Really, really good. Yeah. I can see Brian and both of you now being inundated with requests for, for mentoring. So, <laughs> some more work there. Not that you're, you know, not busy enough. Really. That's cool. Um, great stuff. No, I love that. That was really, really interesting. Um, Giselle, we'll come to you. What was your content that you were looking at this week? Okay. So I really like the podcast, uh, Don't Tell Me the Score, um, which is with Simon Mundy. And what he does is it's like um, using sport to explore, explore life's bigger questions. And um, he sits down each week he does with a, an expert, either in the sporting world, and he's had some absolute icons, or, um, you know, sports psychologists, or he's had a Buddhist monk on there, you know, he has all sorts of people and you discuss all sorts of, of topics. Um, and the one that I, I'm going to talk about now, um, he had Kath Bishop on, um, and she's just written a book called The Long Win, and she's, um, she's been to three Olympic Games as a, as a rower. Um, she she started off in uh, 1996 in Atlanta where she came seventh then she went to Sydney and came ninth and then she did Athens and she got a silver medal with um, Dame Catherine Granger so she was the two Catherines if you remember that um, but she she 
discusses all the way through the, the, the you know, there's various themes that run through this, but the, the predominant one, she's now a, a diplomat, which uh, the, varied, the varied careers of sports people or, or people generally is, is, was interesting in the first place. But she, she talks about um, uh, three elements that she feels is most important, being a diplomat. And these came to her, again, talking mentors. Um, she had a, a meeting with a very esteemed uh, diplomat before she went to Sarajevo and she thought he was going to tell her all about the, the Balkans wars and all the things about that. And that was her expectation of this meeting. And it, and it wasn't that at all. He, he gave her three golden rules as to how to be a diplomat. So the first one was you have to get to know the people that you are meeting beyond the job title. Okay. So she, she was saying that the first thing that we do when we go to a party that we haven't met someone is hello, my name is, and Oh, what do you do? And so we get defined, as we said earlier, by, by, by your job. And she said, uh, you know, an interesting exercise is to actually define your own job. Um, not to call yourself a director of rugby, but what is it that you do? How would you describe yourself away from that title? Because director of rugby to me or to Joe or to Steve Diamond or whoever is, is different. We, we do it differently. So how, how would that be? Um, but she's saying that you've got to find out what, what the people that you work with in her diplomat world, which I saw massive transference across to coaching, you know, what they care about, what are they, what gets them up in the morning and, and what's really important to them. And she said that the, the guy's advice was to, to find that out as quickly as possible. So the, the second thing was to listen more than you speak, which I, I thought was a really interesting one. Um, and what she said was that when you listen, you are actually understanding. So not waiting for your turn to speak, but actually listening to what that individual had to say. Um, and that she said that we have a, a way of feeling that we influence others more by speaking. And she said, actually, it can be often completely the other way around. Maybe a slightly longer process, but a much deeper process when, when you do the listening. Um, and she said, if you understand where other people are coming from and their perspective of the world, so which piece of the cheese they're looking at would be, um, you'd really then start to be able to influence and be able to direct and be able to take them forward, um, in, in what it is they're trying to achieve. And the third thing was to build on what you have in common, which again, I thought was a really interesting one. Um, there will always be something, she said, the diversity of, of, the diplomatic world you know you could be meeting someone from country that's culturally completely opposite to you um that doesn't share your day-to-day -day values what have you she said but the job of a diplomat is to find that thing in common and that there are there is always something that will be in common between you and another another human being um and so those were her three three golden rules in fact she does a lot of things in threes which was another thing that came up for me in this podcast just the power of three and and you know if you say something three times it sticks when you make the big speech if you give three coaching points in your whole session should be sufficient all these and that started coming through in this podcast for me when I sat down to really think about it she did three Olympic games and she talks about that um, the first one and, and again I, I thought this was fascinating in terms of what we do that so many times um, and you see it in the football world more than anything at premiership you have to win immediately and it doesn't work like that <laughs> and you know so you, you, people people expect at the premiership because of the money that gets spent that that the the managers have got to win and that's it and if they don't win they're sacked 
and then you put the next poor person in there who hasn't got time to develop all these processes and hasn't got this and that and if he doesn't win he's sacked and so on and so on and she talked about her three three journeys the first time she came seventh and the way she described it she said well I was just kind of it, it helped me sort of get what it was all about and I realized that there was so much more that I could give um and so she was right you know that empowered her in that way but a lot of people would say you use the olympic games to do that but actually that is what the process is for for someone so for us to win the competition that joe and i compete in in the first year well is that like well obviously someone's going to do it but do you know what i mean it's not it's not a built process it's not getting that that, that way in way inclined so the next one though she came ninth and she said she fell apart. Her whole world fell apart. And, and there she goes into discussing how um, you're, you become defined by your sport. Instead of defined as the human being you are, you're defined by your sport. And, and she talks how dangerous that actually is. Um, but she, sa she says something that in this podcast doesn't get um, looked at, but for me was perhaps the biggest thing that the whole podcast gave me. She said that when she came ninth, I mean, it took about 18 months to sort her life out and get her head around it and move forward. But she said it was a huge crisis point. But of, but of course, that is the richest learning point. And for me, that just hit me straight between there because, you know, I'm, I'm right in the process of, of, of really looking at failure and failure being the best teacher and not to be afraid of failure. So much so that we set our sessions up now where I'm looking for 80 percent success and 20 percent failure in my sessions because if I'm getting the success at that level, 80%, it means their confidence is there. They believe they can do it, but it doesn't break down that area of, of the athlete's um, way of being. But if, it's, if they're 100% successful, they're not learning. There's no challenge. They're not getting better. If there's only a little bit, it's not enough. But 20%, so one in five going wrong or what have you, I think is, is, is elite performance and that you're stretching them and and there's ways of you know if you if you see that they're so successful you can you know shorten the space shorten the time make the field smaller put more defenders in whatever it may be if they're, they're not successful you give more space, all of that stuff so but I found that and and they they moved on in the podcast on that statement and I was like no talk about it talk about it but they didn't so that that was a, a, another one um and then she she obviously talks about the win in it was coming second but then she goes into this whole thing about winning and how obsessed we are with winning and that we only judge things by winning and that actually what is winning? And she starts talking about that in, in the old days, you know, back in medieval times uh, to collaborate, it was more to collaborate. Um, the, 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 uh, competere, I think it was in Latin or whatever it was, I don't know, competere, which, which meant more effort, more, um, putting in more effort, more time, and you do gain something, but it was all about loads of people doing it. Not, I, I win because I've made you do something badly. That's, and, and, and this podcast then goes off into that massive discussion about if, if it's about me winning at the expense of another team or another person or whatever, that there isn't creativity, there isn't all of that, there isn't a journey, there isn't involvement of the athlete and who they really are and their values. And I, I have to admit, I've got to dig into this a lot deeper because it was quite an interesting concept. She was saying all the time, you know, there she is as a competitive row. She said, I don't, it's not about not competing, but it's about understanding that process and not having the outcome 
be the be all and end all as to your whole performance environment and what have you should be about building the individual, not just building the whole thing up, not just us winning or us losing. But I'm going to stop there because there was a lot of stuff in it, but it was. That was yeah. awesome. There's, there's tons to unpick in that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I love the fact that you've managed, having just heard the story, you've managed to link diplomacy to Neville's coaching cheese. There you go. Perception. Just loving that. So, um, how, so my first question, how do you um, deal with the listening piece? <laughs> and the reason I ask, and it, I, it, it's context specific, definitely, but I really struggle when I host this because I'm trying to listen, but I'm also trying to think of those questions in my head. And actually, the, the best bit for me of this, I get to re-listen when I edit it. So actually, that's when I kind of absorb all the information. But in your kind of day-to-day life or, or the job or whatever it is, how do you manage that bit where you're going, I'm taking in stuff, I know I want to respond, but actually, I want to extend that into that deeper stage of listening? Very interesting question. <laughs> big self-reflection on that there, there, I think there are times when when I have that listening and there are times when I don't so it, it's, it's 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 a big area to look into isn't it because I think sometimes people want you to respond immediately people are asking you to to you know give them an answer or do this and I, and I think it all does tie up into questioning and it does tie up into are you solving people's problems or are you getting them to solve them from themselves? It's like that, the story of, you know, if a man's hungry, you give him, you feed him the fish and he, you feed him that night. But if you teach him to fish, he's never going to be hungry again. And I think, I think it ties up into that for me that sometimes my default, because I'm empathic, I care about people. Sometimes I might go in too quickly to try to solve rather than ask let the listening really get and, and and people the people who mentor me the best like I said of John he, he asked me a whole load of questions sends me on my way <laughs> which you know because it's like well obviously he'll listen to some of my answers and then dig deeper but go away and think about it because you're he believes in my capability to solve my own issues but he needs me to he needs the reason I've gone is because he knows that I've got a bit of a fog around where it's going so he just gives me the little thing that helps me see through my own fog and find my own answers which therefore are much more powerful and I think that is something as a coach I can sometimes not default to that that bit I can go solve 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 and perhaps need to just listen a bit more and just allow them to because often a conversation someone will solve their own problems and you haven't said a word I, I really liked I can't remember who it was um, it might have been Kirk Vallis on the Magic Academy talked about leaving questions unanswered in the room and I really like that because I, 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 that was just like this big light bulb moment because I know as a coach if I'm stood in a huddle or on the pitch or even inside it's like you ask a question you want everyone to come up with an answer there and then I was just like yeah, actually how many times do I just go here's a question we're going to touch on this next week like, and that to me is something I put on my playing card really yeah the playing card of just something like that for me to be aware all the time of am I solving people's issues too quickly or am I getting am I giving them the fish or am I giving them the fishing rod yeah yeah I always laugh at the the analogy of uh, um when you said you know uh, listen twice as much as you speak 
Because in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, if you're both listening twice as much as you speak, <laughs> not a conversation. So it's kind of this like... Awkward. I, yeah, I'm trying not to talk, but I think they're doing the same thing. So <laughs> now we're just not doing anyway. Like, what do I do? <laughs> You've got to ask a question that makes them talk. Yes, that's the key, isn't it? I yeah. Yeah, planning, planning some good questions. I think that's a skill in itself. So yeah, fair play. Love that. Um, you mentioned about winning immediately. So definitely it's a big football thing. Um, how, how would you feel? So if you went into a new environment, um, if you'd gone into Wasps or Joe at Worcester or wherever, and you'd been successful immediately, do you think that can actually cause bigger problems later on down the line in terms of you haven't had time to establish the processes that, you think our foundations we can we, we can win for a number of reasons you might just have a better team than anyone else or you know there's a load of things that contribute to that but I, i've never really actually thought use the football example if i go in and suddenly i do become successful are people just going to carry on with those habits even if they're not actually the ones that i think will make us successful in the long term i, th I think for me because i watch a lot of football as well um i think for me the pressure that they're under is they've got to find the, the things that give you quick wins so i know when i went into wasps it was quick wins to start with because things weren't where they needed to be so it was like well i can make a quick win here i can make a quick win there. And, I, and i think joe you would probably agree with that as well because you did just that at, at worcester the results turned really really quickly um but those things that you can quick win with don't give you sustained high performance is what it's, they're, they're what you would expect to be seeing perhaps anyway and weren't when you arrived at the environment um so to have a sustained high performance environment where athletes really feel valued and are making individual progress as well as the team that takes time it takes resources i mean for me you look at the premier 15s and the premiership that was prior to the premier 15s so the premiership that was the, the the people that are playing the game are still the same people that traveled in yes there are other athletes that have come across but on the whole but they had no major backup there was no roles no strength and conditioning no no yeah there was coaches trying their best but they only had the players for like two sessions of an hour and a half and they didn't have the medical support to put them back together again. And you certainly didn't have the analysis support that you needed. And then by putting all those resources and those things to people and using what you have well, the potential within has just come piling out of all these athletes and the, the, the game has gone on an exponential, exponential curve and, and doesn't show any sign of stopping yet. In my opinion, I, I still think there's loads more and the, and the standards going to go higher and higher very, very quickly. Still, we're not, we're not on plateau stage at all yet. So the quick wins are things that I think as your experience, you can set in and you see something and it's easy to quickly change that. And that's more technical and tactical. I think when you go into um, sustained high performance, it's a lot deeper and takes a lot longer and a lot more thought and relationship building and the trust and the authenticity and all of those things have to come into boot. I don't know if you agree with that, Joe. Yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, the podcast that I was talking about earlier, um, when um, she took over that Australian team, they, they were, they'd actually just won, I think, the World Cup. So it was quite hard to say, well, I've got to come in and make changes and make this better to those players. So instead of her 
set and her bar there, she was like, we are going to be the best high performance program in the world. So like she kind of raised the bar again for them. But I think going back to your point around the quick fixes, um, it's just being careful what quick fixes you use, I think, um, that aren't going to have a, a negative impact on or detrimental impact on the sort of what you're trying to build long term. So yes, you can do your quick fixes on, on the technical and tactical, but you have to be really careful around, you know, not just going out and saying, right, I'm going to, if you can do so, bring in a load of players to make a, make a quick change because that long term isn't going to help your squad. Making quick fixes on the field, I think, is different. Um, but what you don't want to do is devalue what you want to eventually go on to build um, and staying true to that, I think, is really important. And that's having the vision in the first place of what you want. Yeah. How, how much would or how challenging would it be for you as a coach to go into an environment? So let's say uh, someone picks up the phone and says, we want you as the head coach, DOR, um, but we need you to win in the first season. Is that a challenge where you go, oh, this is really unique? Or is that like a big red flag where you're going, this doesn't suit my style? Is it something you think you could achieve given the right support? Or or is it always a longer term picture? <laughs> Do you want to go first, Joe? Or... Oh, I d- it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because there's lots of factors in there. Like, what sort of squad have you got? Have you got a squad that realistically is going to contend and all of that? Like, if I'm honest, like, if Worcester turned around to me and said, you know, in your first full season, you need to win, um, I really, it's not going to, you know, realistically, you want to build, like, you go out and buy lots of players, but you want to build. If you get success by building and doing it right, great. But that's not the that shouldn't be the outcome in year one. Like Giselle said, as a squad, you know, our kind of vision is much more sustainable than that. And um, I don't think you can just go in and, and buy players to try and do that. Cause that's, that's personally kind of against what would be my sort of um, my coaching philosophy on that. So it would be not, you can't, yeah. An outcome like that in year one is, is, um, you're going to kind of end up potentially sacrificing some things that uh, that you believe in, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would, you have to look at what's there already. You have to look at, you know, whether it's, it's a real thing or it's not. Um, it would be a challenge to try. Um, but as you're trying, you have to, as Joe said, you have to stick to who and what you are, because if the moment you leave from who and what you are, you're not going to win anyway that's my view you, you know if if it was a a three four week competition it might be a bit different you might better hold everything together for that length of time but the a season the moment you're not real you're not authentic and you come away from what you genuinely believe in it falls apart very very quickly so i think you know for me as a as a coach i think the the most important thing is that i'm very aware of who i am and and how i react to situations and that comes with time and what have you, but what my, what my philosophies are, how I react to situations such as, you know, when I said before, when adversity hits, you still do the same stuff. You still are committed to, to what you, what you believe in. Um, and I'm, I'm very big on, on the athletes knowing who they are, know yourself, know your teammates. Um, and it's the same within our coaching team. We need to know ourselves and we need to know the coaching team so that when something happens, I'm kind of thinking, well, I, I think I know why that person's just reacted like that. Um, and then it doesn't have the same 
um, potential destructive influences it could have if you know the individual and why something might have happened negatively. Um, it, it, if it fits into how a person reacts, it's when something happens that's completely out of character, that's the one that you kind of go, oh my God, what the hell's going on here? But knowing your characters means that things are diffused a lot quicker. But it would be a challenge to go for, which is fun. Love that. No, that's cool. That's really interesting. Um, so talking about adversity and I'll kind of, this will be my last question because I'm, I am conscious of your time, but what would you say has been your outside of kind of maybe current situation? What has been the biggest challenge you've overcome within your coaching career or even your best mistake? What's your been your kind of biggest learning moment if you're going to maybe try and peg down one? And I appreciate it doesn't necessarily work like that, but is there an obvious one that stands out? you've never made them yeah <laughs> oh god no yeah. which ones we share with you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well that throws up another point do, do you think as coaches do we talk about failure enough do we talk about our mistakes because I, I hear you know there's lots of podcasts and I it's always very success orientated but I don't know how maybe maybe it's just the the, the main it's in that we we're not comfortable sharing with people we've never met i'm not sure but it's that that goes back to the comment that was made in the podcast that they didn't explore which huge crisis point but of course that's the richest learning point mm. so when we we all do it and we shouldn't but we all do it when we lose a game you pick the hell out of it when you win a game you see a few bits and you know you don't get some and players don't listen in the same way they just don't listen in the same way of when you're analyzing a win versus analyzing a loss. The, the, the attention focus is so different. And whether that's a subconscious, whether it's a cultural thing, um, but it failure is something we should embrace because it teaches us, but it can be quite painful. And the lessons can be, you know, quite deep quickly. And it's, it's how, you know, obviously not the, the small tactical thing that's, you know, but the, the levels of things that can happen. So when she lost, she came ninth in that Olympic games, absolutely. She, she said her world ended. She didn't know how to deal with it at all. And, and, and put her whole, her whole being as a failure. She felt that she said, I sat at the back of the plane and nobody spoke to me. Well, I'm sure that was because she put herself at the back of the plane and probably had a face like thunder and nobody felt they could approach her. But her perception was, I'm, I'm a failure. Nobody wants to know me because I didn't. The fact that we, I think we only won, well, no, it was the, the games before where we only won one gold medal in the whole games. Um, but she, she, um, yeah, she attaches that. So it's when, when we do fail, the, depending upon the magnitude of it is how, how you get put back together. I think it's about admitting, um, being open with players as well when you're coaching and admitting when you've got it wrong because there's no point players can see if mistakes have been made and and it's kind of um, putting your hands up sometimes and admitting that that was wrong and and constantly getting players to to feedback because you know they're the ones we're delivering to and and actually kind of being really open to that and having a process where they feel comfortable with that because we 100% get things wrong all of the time, but we can only get better if we get that feedback and we're open to that feedback. And we constantly push our players to give feedback to us um, in various means. And um, because it is, it is so, so valuable because we, we can only improve and develop as coaches. Yes, we can have all these mentors and stuff, but you know, the, the players are, <laughs> players are seeing us um, on the front line, aren't they? So they're, 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 they're so valuable in that. 
I like that. And I, yeah, I think with the player feedback and the mentor, you're, on a, you're kind of almost putting yourself in the middle of the sandwich rather than it being that, that element of... I, I do still think a lot of players see it as a one-way process that you know the coach's role is there to give them feedback and however much you can try and delve into that they're still never that comfortable passing stuff kind of almost back back because I do think they see it as a hierarchy and, and I can completely understand when someone is selecting you or not selecting you for various things there's there is a power dynamic there that you just kind of can't ignore and actually how willing they would be to to really give as honest a feedback. And, and I guess comes back to almost full circle, which is quite like how I, I like the podcast to work, but almost back to that bit of, you know, unless they're, you're authentic with them and they can trust you and you know what the real them is and they know what the real you is, you're never going to be in a position to be able to judge accurately are they being as honest as they could be. Yeah. Yeah, does that come back to the emotional intelligent piece? If you are, if you are, if you've created a performance environment that allows people to be who they are and allows, you know, you're genuinely interested in the individual behind the rugby player, then I would suggest that those conversations can come back. And when you ask a player, how was that? Did you learn? Did you enjoy that? You get back. And, and, and if, if, if they, they didn't really, they'll just go, yeah, yeah you don't get any detail and that's again emotional intelligence of picking up but if they suddenly come back and say yeah I love the the perception bit that we did over there or the intensity of that over there was fantastic or the handling then you know that that's genuine because they're referring to it if it's just yeah yeah it was great that's kind of like well okay it's that's the dynamic of of the coach to the player they're not going to tell you no it was rubbish hated it I agree with you but you don't get the detail I think but it's it's Building, but that's part of building those relationships and knowing your players, isn't it? Because you know the players to go to that if you want this answer. There's certain players out there that they've only got, they're only going to give it you one way, um, <laughs> and that's honest and straight. And and if you're not sure, you you know who to pick out. Um, and that's just again by getting to know your players. Some players are really uncomfortable with you asking the question. They're like, please don't ask me because I don't want to be, able, you know. It, and it's difficult. So again, that's all about knowing your players. Superb. Again, to make them leaders, then maybe we have to ask them the question. As you yeah. were saying earlier, developing leaders, maybe those the players that are uncomfortable at first, we throw in little bits in order that we can develop them as leaders. I don't know. It's an endless cycle. That's why our job is never dull. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. That is very true. Superb. Uh, so looking to at other stuff that you've engaged with, the kind of little wrap-up, what, uh, what else caught your eye or would you suggest other people go and take a look at? Um, I saw something come up on a podcast um, and on the way of champions and it seemed quite sort of relevant to the time we're in at the moment it's how to overcome disruption and um, build more team unity Um, but it's in the current climate so kind of it talks about managing zoom fatigue because we've all been on (laughs) that communication managing expectations and uncertainty right now so I haven't listened to it yet but it seems um, like something that might be quite useful um, with the current stage we're in. What was it called? It's uh, from the way of champions and it's how to overcome disruption and build more team unity. And then for me if I go from the, the, the podcast of don't tell me the score I haven't you know there's there's loads and loads of them and, and there's two there that I haven't dived into yet and, and want to one is power of emotion and that's Mel Marshall 
and the other is managing people and it's Sam Allardyce and I find just that yeah exactly your, re your reaction there I'm very very interested to because my perception I don't I've never met Sam I have the media's perception of him and therefore I'm very very interested to hear what he's got to say about how he manages people no, I really love that. That'll be good. That'll be a good listen. Super, great recommendations. Thank you. Um, I'm going to round up the roundup. So we hope you find it useful. Thank you to my guests for their excellent insight. This has definitely been uh, one of my favourite podcasts so far. So um, really, really enjoyed it. Links to all the content will be discussed and shared in the podcast blurb. Please subscribe, like and share. As we ride off into the sunset, I'd like to wish you all the best. Stay safe and go well.